I think the ADHD brain loves structure, loves it, like thrives when there is structure, even though the people who, even though they will tell you they hate structure and they definitely don't want anybody else designing the structure for them, the brain does is drawn to it because there's so much noise and chaos in our heads all the time. So when we don't have structure to our day or to our spaces, it creates this like overwhelming internal and external chaos that is very hard to cope with, especially if you need to be productive. It's very hard. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. Before we get started, I want to share another review I received recently. This one was left on my website, womenandadhd.com. It's from Michelle M. Michelle writes, love your podcasts. It is the first time I've ever listened to any podcasts. I've enjoyed all of them so far. Episode 12 with Alejandra Kotke absolutely hit the mark for me. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Michelle. Yes, that's right. You can leave reviews on my website at womenandadhd.com slash episodes. So if you listen on a podcast platform that doesn't offer the ability to give ratings or reviews, you can go over there and leave one. So you literally have no excuses. Hint, hint. All right, uh, moving on. This is episode 14, in which I interview the brilliant and effervescent Elizabeth Brink. Elizabeth is an ADHD coach who helps women with ADHD get unstuck. Her clients are building skills to live with less shame while managing all the things of life, work, and family. She's also trained and mentored by some of the ADHD coaching greats, including Nancy Rady, Linda Rogley, and Denslow Brown. Elizabeth lives in Kansas City, Missouri with her husband and two young children. Elizabeth was actually diagnosed in the fourth grade at the age of nine, so she's my first guest who was diagnosed in childhood. But what I found interesting about her perspective is that her experience as an adult woman is still so similar to many of the other women I've interviewed because the diagnosis did not really mean much and was kind of forgotten about until she reached her 30s and then especially later when she became a mother. So we talk a lot about the difference a childhood diagnosis might or might not have made for those of us who are diagnosed in adulthood and are feeling a lot of sort of grief and resentment about that. And we also talk a lot about motherhood and how much women with ADHD struggle, especially through the baby and toddler years, and why that is, from the overwhelming responsibilities and the lack of structure to the sheer noise and chaos of those tiny little balls of need. All right, uh, so if you're a mother, you definitely want to tune into this one. If you know anyone who is struggling with a baby or a toddler, please have her listen to this episode. It is really insightful and Elizabeth offers so much wisdom and just generally is a nurturing, nurturing voice in the world. All right. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Thanks again for joining me, Elizabeth. And you are my first guest who was actually diagnosed in childhood. And, um, but I'm still very excited to talk to you about that diagnosis and how it has sort of evolved for you in various stages in womanhood and motherhood. Um, but usually I always ask my guests 
you know, when did you first think you had ADHD? And this is, and, and what led you to your diagnosis? So this is going to be a very different story for you, but sort of talk me through how, how you got your diagnosis and when that was. Yeah. So thanks for having me. Um, so I, yeah, I was diagnosed um, as a kid around the age of nine in fourth grade. My mom felt like for a kid as bright as she felt like I was, I was not getting grades that reflected that. And then she was constantly being spoken to by teachers about my talkativeness. And so I think she just started to wonder, like, what is going on? I'm one of five. I'm the fourth of five kids. So she had been around the block a few times. (laughs) And um, so she really advocated for me. And that was in the late 80s when, you know, there just wasn't a lot of diagnosis happening. Definitely not a lot of girl diagnoses happening. Um, And so I was diagnosed ADD combined type at that point um, as a child. And I took Ritalin for a couple of years and they told my mom, hey, she can learn to control it and she will probably outgrow it. So as I got into middle school, I was like, I don't want to go to the office and with the weird kids who take meds. Like, I don't want to do it anymore. They said I could outgrow it. And so, and there was other like big family stuff going on. So it was like, okay, you don't have to take them. So basically I had like create, I had, my mom had helped me set up these few strategies for managing my ADHD, but I didn't know that's what they were for necessarily. Um, So I always grew up with this awareness that like, oh, I have this ADD diagnosis, but I didn't really have any idea what it meant. I definitely didn't understand anything about the neurobiology or about the coexisting, you know, sensory sensitivity and for me, anxiety. And so I made it through high school somehow by the skin of my teeth. And as I got into adulthood, I um, moved to Boston. I was I was growing up in Texas. I, I moved to Boston. And I went through this period of time where I was unemployed and I was working part-time as an assistant to one of like the original ADHD coaches, Nancy Rady. And I was watching her have coaching calls with clients. And I was like, I think I still have this. I think that that is why my car looks like it does. And it was kind of this whole like, um, hold on, <laughs> what what is reality? So at that point, I was right around 30. And I actually went and saw a psychiatrist to talk it through who like verified for me that it's still a thing. And so, you know, it really for me, I do relate a lot to the late diagnosis club because there's so much about having been diagnosed as a child in the time period that I was diagnosed. And I hear this from other individuals as well, that there was just so much less known about how to support us and how to educate us about ourselves. So a lot of us actually made it to adulthood, not realizing that a whole lot of the stuff going on in our lives was from this thing that we had heard about, you know, as a kid. So that that's really, so I came to it and then, um, about seven or eight years later, I late in my thirties started a family and I had three miscarriages before I had two kids, 16 months apart. And, um, you know, pushing 40, that was a, (laughs) I don't want to say traumatic because I love my kids and it was a great experience in some regards, but I had this breaking moment after my son, my second child was born where I just 
felt like something's really wrong with me. I don't know what it is, but something is really wrong. And so I started seeing a therapist who specialized in women and their childbearing years. And she validated so much about my experience in terms of the weightiness of everything I had lost and gone through. But it at some point in there dawned on me that I think I started talking to other women who had ADHD and had young kids. And it was like a few of my friends and they were also saying like me that they didn't like the little years. Like they didn't like babies. And I was like, me either. Is this like the dirty secret of motherhood? Is that like people don't actually like babies? And then I realized, no, the common denominator here was these were all women with ADD that were telling me they didn't like the baby time. And so it just like blew open this whole thing for me. Um, This was now like a couple of years ago where I thought this is, this is a thing, something's going on here. And so at that point I began to really dig in again to the ADHD. So it was like these three stages of life when a lot of people are diagnosed and, um, and realizing, you know, my overwhelm in motherhood was largely connected to my ADHD. And it just, made me feel like, why isn't anyone talking to me about this? There's so much out there for parents, parenting kids with ADHD, but nobody's talking to me about mom. What's going on with me as a person? So that's my diagnosis story. It's long, but and, and there's like stages of it. But I do think that that happens to a lot of people, even when they're diagnosed later, where you just evolve the more you learn and the more your life stage shifts. And I think there's also generally this feeling when you have ADHD, like it was staring at me all along. I just never really saw it until now. Moments with a lot of things, like for instance, you know, I had two older brothers. My mother taught them both to cook, but she never taught me to cook. And so I always remember being like angry at her being like, why did you teach me to cook? I can't do anything. I have no life skills. And she was like, well, I just, I, I was teaching you, you know, I, you know, I, I was teaching you the same way I was teaching them sort of just through osmosis. It's not like I took them aside and gave them private lessons, but you know, I was sort of now looking back, realizing how much of that, like how much we need to be told in a very specific way about things. And mm-hmm. so it can feel like in retrospect, you're like, oh yeah, it was there all along, but I just, needed it to be, you know, that I needed the, the angle of the light a little differently for it to really like hit home. Um, and I think, oh my goodness, I resonate with that so much about the, the, the little years. Cause you're still, you're still kind of in the thick of it, right? Your kids are young. Yeah. Yeah. Mine are nine and 13. And I feel like I'm just like finally getting that time to breathe and, and have such empathy for women who have <laughs> the littles because it's, especially during a lockdown and a pandemic. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Um, but I think, you know, when you go through that trauma, the trauma, the trauma of motherhood, um, there's an overwhelming, uh, sense of, uh, obligation to feel gratitude, you know? And, and so I think we, as mothers tend to like really hide those moments that we are miserable because we're supposed to be. And I imagine even you know, I imagine when you were going through miscarriages, that's even amplified that a feeling of like, now I have these children, I should always 100% be grateful for the fact that I have these children. And you can't really share the fact that no, there's actually a lot about motherhood that's really hard. And that is is miserable. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, because I felt like once I had a, a healthy pregnancy, I did feel like, oh, now I'm on the other side of this fence, but I relate so much more to the women in 
the circles of the infertility circles that I was in. And I think a big part of that is that I grew up with kind of a long narrative throughout the course of my life of suffering and sorrow and grief. And so grief is actually really comfortable for me um, and familiar. And so when I got to this place of like, now there should be joy. And instead I had really anxiety. I had a ton of anxiety with my firstborn and was scared of her, was just like, well, she's crying again, or don't leave me. If she cries, I don't know. <laughs> like, And I knew what to do. Like, my mom ran a daycare in my home growing up and I worked for her for a long time. I actually do know how to take care of kids better than some people, but there was something about it for me that that combination of ADHD and anxiety and hormones definitely landed me in this place of this is not at all what I thought it was going to be like. And I can't believe I don't like it because I really spent so much time longing to meet someone to have a family with and then grieving these losses and hoping for this. And I'd seen other people go through it and, and not look like they were having a hard time or sad, you know, and see them kind of like just rejoicing in this life every day. And I was like, I don't know if this is like a issue with my character, if this is my heart, if this is me, like, what is this that I am like, I want to get away from you and I you know, would like mm. someone else to take care of you, please. I also, you know, had kids late. So I had a whole career and a long time as an adult single. And I, so that whole like death to myself in marriage and then in motherhood was really um, disorienting for me. And because of the ADHD, I now know, like you were saying, you look back on these things. I think that's a lifelong process of of like re-seeing yourself in your past, even from last week, where you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that was the ADHD or like that piece of it, you know, like that just, I feel like that happens to me every day where something like comes back into view. And that season of adjusting to marriage and motherhood and just grown up life and kind of like laying down some of my own individualism. For me with ADHD, it was really overwhelming because again, we have so many thoughts and so many ideas and so many, you know, I should be looking into this. I should research this. I couldn't hyper-focus on any one thing because there were too many of them. And so it just created this swirling stress of like, I need to learn how to take care of this little person. I need to figure out how to be a wife and take care of a house and have a job. And, and it just, you know, I couldn't just like be all in on one thing, Googling late into the night. <laughs> it was like, up, oh, move to the next subject. So I said to people, I feel like I'm in an intensive grad program. Never been in one, but I'm pretty sure this is what it's like, <laughs> like med school or something. Mm -hmm. And it was just like my grown up life. Yeah, I think that's one thing I'm realizing from so many women who were diagnosed this year. I was diagnosed this year. I call it the pandemic diagnoses, lockdown, whatever you want to call it. Figuring out why so many of us had this uh, realization or why it was important to us, even, you know, because it had been suggested to me for years by my own therapist that I had ADHD. It was just, and I was sort of like, oh, ha ha ha, I can't find my keys or whatever, you know, like it really didn't like hit home the way it did as now. And I think, you know, there's so much in what you said about 
that feeling of like we were able to compartmentalize our lives in in certain ways with the kids go you know we were able to take the the kids go to school and and we had the job and we had time frames and and we need these containers and when all of those containers were gone and all of a sudden everybody was home together the same and you know and it was just like um there were no, all the moving parts were together in this one swarm, you know, and I feel like we use those metaphors. We use anything that involves like a spiral or a tornado or a swarm. You're like, yes. Uh, you know, because we, we aren't able to um, like grasp at these things and, and, and find that focus that we need. There's just so much happening. And, and that was another really interesting realization for me recently was just how many issues I have with um, sensory auditory processing that I never would have said I had sensory issues, you know, or, and it's something that we as parents notice a lot more in children. It's not anything that was talked about when I was a kid. Um, but now looking back and realizing, you know, that a lot of why we struggled with babies is auditory related. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, if I had known that, I would have enlisted earplugs a lot earlier. Right? <laughs> I would have said, I can hold this screaming baby, and if I have earplugs in, it muffles it enough that, like, I, my body feels safe. But I didn't know that, so it just sent my nervous system into a tailspin. Well, I think we're also addicted to um, feeling like we have to do things on our own, you know, or, you know, with that, that kind of hack, there's like a fine line between finding hacks and then crutches, you know, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I think we can be very, we can really beat ourselves up about things um, where we feel like we have to be authentic and we feel like we have to do things authentically and we have to do things whole hog. And, uh, you know, I love that, that I think it's actually from Parks and Rec, that idea of like, I don't do anything half-ass. It's either whole-ass or no-ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because last night I was having this discussion with um, the women in the Enclave, which is this online community that I help run. And we were talking about self-trust and confidence. And one of the women was saying, you know, we're, we are rewarded for appearing to have confidence So if you look like you trust yourself and like you're sure of your decisions or your opinions or whatever, you know, society rewards that and people will offer you up trust. They will trust you if you present yourself in a way that seems sure. And so unfortunately for those of us with ADHD, you know, we went through our childhood feeling like we were the least trustworthy person in the world. I can't trust myself. I should not trust myself is all the messaging I'm getting externally and internally. But then at the same time, I need to look like I trust myself and I need to act like I do so that other people will trust me and give me a shot so that I won't be left out or set aside or forgotten. And that is so toxic. And I find that so many of the women that I work with are carrying such deep shame over the fact that they cannot be self-sufficient, saying things like, I don't want to have to need as much as I need. I don't want to have to need help. I don't want to be needy. But no one is self-sufficient. No one. But we as a culture have kind of created this environment and this standard that makes it look like like it is possible and like it is something that we should all be trying to, you know, grasp for. And it's just a trap. I think it's a total trap for those of us who 
are high performers and want to do well and are driven. And then we hear these messages of like, yeah, you should be driven. You should go after it. But you're probably going to slip and fall or you're probably going to forget something important. And so don't trust yourself to like totally do it. So it's just this constant internal dialogue that's like, I'm out here, I'm doing this risky thing. This feels kind of good, but also I'm sure I'm going to fall on my face. So there's no way I should talk about this with any kind of, you know, any kind of positivity or any kind of like anything that might be construed as arrogance, because I will have to like, you know, eat dirt later. You know, it's funny, I, I speak with so many women who were diagnosed and we all sort of share that grief and that resentment about not having the diagnosis in our childhood you know either like who why didn't anybody see this um I would have done so much better in school (laughs) you know I would have I would have talked to myself better I mean just so many ways in which you can kind of it's it's incredibly freeing and enlightening to look back at your life with this new lens and think oh this is so great but at the same time there is that accompanying sense of kind of anger and frustration. Um, And often I've heard women who just say like, I want to go back and give that girl a hug. (laughs) And, but it's interesting to hear your perspective too, because it almost feels like even had you known, you know, there's so many of these things that we fall prey to as women just in society and the way in which our personalities then react to um, stressors in, in, in society and in roles in our life that it's, you know, even with the recognition, even with the um, knowledge that you had ADHD as a child, you still sort of had a very similar <laughs> trajectory. Yeah. And I think that that is in large part because I'm a girl, you know, I mean, I think that that's a big part of it. But yeah, I think that I tell people that all the time, like a childhood diagnosis it doesn't mean the same thing. Now, a childhood diagnosis, like for someone who is in their 20s right now, um, maybe in their early 30s, a childhood diagnosis might have made a little bit more of a difference just in terms of where society was with information about ADHD. But once you start getting like people in their 30s onward saying, I wish I had known, you know, growing up, I just am like, yeah, well, then the school systems would need to know and the parents would need to know and the neighbors and, you know, your friends, they would all need to understand neurodiversity. And that just is like, it's, we're still not there, right? So your life experience may not have been that different. In fact, in some sense, you know, knowing that I was different, I, I kind of put myself in a, in a place of like, I'm never going to be whatever, fill in the blank, never going to be that smart, never going to be in that class or go to that school or have that experience. And I think that held me back some because it was like, this stuff is hard for me. I know that I have to study with a fan on, you know, I know I need to do, do these certain things. I know I have a hard time keeping my room clean. So I'm going to have tension with roommates. And instead of just like living my life, you know, so it's like, it doesn't matter, like blinded or not, that information shapes kind of how that information or that lack of it kind of shapes how you move through the world. But it doesn't necessarily mean that one is going to be a positive experience. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder with the younger generation, I, you know, I think that one thing they benefit from that we didn't have growing up was a sense of, um, 
the lack of stigma around, around therapy, around just generally asking for help, you know, like, I feel like we've talked about that. We've touched on that theme a bit in our conversation mm-hmm. already, just that how difficult it is to ask for help and how difficult it is to ask for support when it really is the one thing we need the most, especially community and support. Um, but because we, as women struggle so much with wanting to be perfect and get this done and, and appear perfect. And I think that's something I hope the younger generation really is free from, um, any stigma around, you know, getting all the tools, the mental health tools you need. You know, I remember somebody recently was saying like that this, they're the, the mental health generation, um, hmm. you know, in terms of, uh, really like, yeah, just, you know, there's no fault in, in, in recognizing deficiencies or I feel like that's not the best word, but <laughs> just realizing that there's, you know, ways in which you need to pull in from other places and to make you a whole person. And um, I certainly felt like since my diagnosis, I really, you know, one thing I've seen a lot of and recognized in myself was how important it was to immediately binge listen to podcasts and join as many Facebook groups as possible and follow as many people as possible because there's just that sense of not only feeling recognized and feeling validated and Mm -hmm. feeling like oh my god for the first there's this whole community that's existing that sees me and validates me and and understands what I'm going through but then also once the once the newness of all that dies down really kind of embracing how important community and support is um so I feel like that's a good segue to talk about the Enclave and how did you get involved in it? And I'm like this close to joining. Uh- oh, come on. <laughs> We'd love to have you. So, yeah. So I, um, I started coaching. So I'm an ADHD coach for women and I do work with a lot of moms, but I have clients that are not moms too. Um, and I really had this vision of, I want to run groups. I want to, I love group dynamics. And when I was in that early, I know I'm still in early motherhood, but in the very beginning part of motherhood, um, when I was kind of coming out of the fog after having my son, I, I went and was a part of a small, like postpartum moms group that was run by a social worker. And there were only six of us in it. My son was about 14 months. So I, at that point, when I was thinking like, something's really wrong with me, I felt like I couldn't still be postpartum. Like I just somehow didn't have the context of like, nope, you're postpartum for like 18 months at least in terms of the medical community's opinion. So when I went through that group program, I found the space to just breathe and to just like think about myself for a minute and think about like my emotions and how I was moving through my day. And it didn't necessarily change any of my habits or anything. And that wasn't the point, but it was so restorative and healing that as I was started coaching, I was like, I have got to do things like that. Like that is the kind of healing that I want for the moms and the women with ADHD out there flailing around who were feeling like I was feeling. And so I, I connected with Liz Lewis, who created the Enclave. I connected with her on Instagram and, you know, we'd message back and forth occasionally. And I was just kind of like, man, I really like what she has built over there. I don't want to compete against her. Um, 
I, and, and so anyway, somehow through it, I started running some groups on my own. Um, last year, I ran this like three week program called Thrive Group with um, ADHD moms and just kind of teaching them like, this is what's going on with your neurobiology. This is what's going on with your emotions. And here's how you can know if all that stuff you're reading and watching is going to actually work for you. Because I just kept talking to women who were like, I've attended all these free webinars. I've read all these things. You know, I've got all these books earmarked, but I still can't figure out how to get myself up in the morning before my kids wake up. <laughs> it's like, okay, those things are not going to fix all of your problems, right? But learning yourself and getting to know you is going to help you try things in a way that's smarter for you. And so I just started to feel really passionately about teaching women to coach themselves. And that's something that my former um, boss and now mentor, Nancy Rady, is really passionate about. She has a book about self-coaching. And so I was doing all this self-coaching stuff over here and Liz is doing community building and research. And I said, you know, I really like what you have going on. And she said, I've been kind of thinking I maybe need a partner. And I was like, please, let it be me. <laughs> so it's super exciting. I feel like it was serendipitous. We just, um, I just joined in, like in October of last year, kind of came on and said, okay, like, let's do this. So it has been one of the best things I've done in terms of my professional endeavors, but also in supporting women and connecting with them. So we, we meet twice a week. Um, and, but there's like a, a entry-level membership that's like $35 a month and you can be in the community online with us. You can come body double with us and we do special events. Um, and then there are these, these other two memberships that include meetings. And um, every week we come up with a theme and we talk about it online. We talk about it in the meetings. This week we're talking about self-trust. Last week it was criticism. And um, it's just been an awesome experience having these women just show up and be vulnerable and let us into the mess and say, hey, like I want to feel better. I want to, I want to know me better. Um, yeah. So that's what it is. I, I just, it is so special. It is multi-generational. The women are in all different kinds of seasons and stages, all different parts of the world. And, um, you know, some have jobs, some are home with their kids. It's just such an interesting, diverse mix of people that, um, I find that hugely valuable. You know, it's funny. i we're such puzzle solvers and we love puzzles. And I think there's nothing more puzzling than ourselves. <laughs> and that's yes. another thing I feel like I've come to realize recently, which was how, you know, people have hobbies like knitting and painting. And my hobby was always just like figuring out me <laughs> because yes. I found me endlessly fascinating. And I always felt very like, ashamed about that in a, in some way. And I feel like I could be very open about that in the ADHD community <laughs> because we all share that ex excitement and enthusiasm um, about figuring out ourselves and then figuring out each other because we have that empathy for, for anyone who struggles. I think we have, we have much more empathy for anyone who, you know, ends up in that feeling of like, I don't, nobody gets me or um, you know, why does this not make sense to me when it seems like it's making sense to everybody else? Mm -hmm. um, and so you mentioned body doubling. And so how, talk to me about body doubling, because I actually don't think I really talked much about it with any of my other 
interviews that have aired yet. So, and I know it's a big thing. Uh, it's in the ADHD community. Uh, and then talk to me about body doubling, but then also sort of how that is separate from just the enclave or the community aspect, because they are really kind of two different things. Well, it's so it's a part of what we do. And I'll, there are a lot of people, a lot of coaches and um, organizations that do body doubling. So the idea around body doubling is like, um, when I was a kid and my room was a disaster, my mom would be like, go clean your room. And it was a disaster. So I was going to be instantly overwhelmed. If she came and stood at the door while I was supposed to be cleaning my room, even if she was doing something else, even if she was reading a book, I could clean my room. I needed the company. I needed somebody to sit nearby. I didn't need them to police me or tell me how to do anything, but I just needed to not be by myself. And I didn't understand that until way into adulthood. And the idea is it anchors you. So the individual with ADHD, you know, our, our mind wanders and it doesn't just wander into like the clouds. It wanders into, especially if you are a mom, it wanders into the never ending to-do list that is, you know, knocking at the door all the time. And, and so it can mean that you have all these impulses to do something else that is important, but is not what you're doing right now. So the body doubling kind of enables you to anchor yourself and to say, you know, it's on video. So it's like, we're in the room together, we're muted, but we check in at the beginning and we say, what are you working on? And I mean, you don't have to say what you're working on and you don't have to do what you said you were going to do. But what we have found in the ADHD community is that by and large, the majority of people, when they tell someone else what they're going to do, and that other person is kind of nearby, they do it. It is the craziest psychological thing. And then, um, and then at the end of it, we come back together and say, well, how'd it go? And so this morning I had a bunch of like business finance stuff I needed to do. I did not want to do. And so I just posted in the enclave and was like, I'm going to do a pop-up body doubling. Anybody want to join me this morning? And I had several other members join me. One was like cleaning her desk. One was cleaning her kitchen. But, you know, we're just like doing things that, and there was a little bit of chit chat because it was a little bit more low key today, but it is so effective in kind of anchoring you to your task and to someone else and to not feel alone. I have a client that actually found a YouTube video of somebody working at their computer. It's a video of this person working and she puts it up and it, she said it works for her brain that it, she feels like someone's working. My daughter does the same thing. She found an, an, a YouTube loop of like an anime character working at a desk with this like beautiful kind of, you know, Totoro-esque music. And she uses that when she's studying. That's fascinating. I never that's even amazing. thought of that. I never even made that connection that that was, that's body doubling. Yeah. That's body doubling. Yeah. So, so we, um, we do it almost every day of the week now where I think at like six days a week, different times. Um, and we just kind of get together and people work on whatever, whatever they want. And some of the women are retirement age and they are, you know, writing greeting cards or, tidying up their house or just reading, but just like the company, like, especially in the pandemic. So it's kind of lovely. It's like, it's like having the nicest coworkers. And because it's within the enclave, it's people who you're interacting with and you're, you're getting to know them a little bit here and there through these like quick little interactions too. So it's, it's less intimidating for some people because it's, 
not just this like, I'm going to log in and this stranger is going to judge what I'm working on. It's, you know, hopefully feels a little safer. Yeah, you know, um, I, so many of us are entrepreneurs and I realize now why, you know, we have a very difficult time working for other people. And yet there have been so many times during this pandemic with my, with my children homeschooling, remote learning, sorry, not homeschooling. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so many times where I've struggled, where I've said to myself, like, God, I wish I had a nine to five job. I wish I could go and shut the door and just do something because it's so difficult. You know, you, you put yourself last always as a mother. And so as a mother and an entrepreneur, everything comes last to, uh, the, mm-hmm. you know, cleaning and cooking and helping the kids and everything else. So it's been so difficult to find that structure and find that time and be, it's, it's like, we struggle so much with, with you can't work nine to five because it's really difficult to work for somebody else. So we end up being entrepreneurs, but at the same time as entrepreneurs, it is so difficult to have that accountability that you need, you know, because, um, you could do it anytime and really who's going to know if you're going to post today or tomorrow, you know, like, so you just leave it off and you leave it off and, and having, I think, you know, recognizing how much we need structure and how much we need those time containers and like the pattern planning was the, you know, I'd never heard of that until a couple months ago and it's been life changing. Um, And again, it's one of those things where I sort of feel like, well, maybe other people knew about this, like it's kind of straightforward, but for me, I just needed the light to change a little bit and to just have the light bulb go off. Mm -hmm. Um, So... But I, I, you know, I think it is such an, it's so simple and so profound. And I love the fact that there are communities in which people can feel comfortable doing it, because I think there is a real, at least for me, there's a, there was a real like um, block for, for that. Uh, And, and you'll probably notice, like when you were talking about it, I smiled really big when you said, you don't even have to do the thing that you said you're going to do, because I was like, that's my fear is like, (laughs) I'm going to, you know, do this thing. And then I end up down a rabbit hole. And, and so I'm going to feel bad about that because that's what always happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I love there's that freedom, like, lucky try. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. And sometimes, I mean, we have ADHD. So sometimes we just blurt out whatever on the spot, like I'm going to clean up my desk. And then we're sitting here looking at our desk and we're like, no, that's the thing I really need to be working on. And we like, go do that thing. Like a lot of people will call it procrastivity. Like you're procrastinating on something by doing something that's technically productive. But I actually think that there's a place for procrastivity. I think that sometimes it's just that we don't know what we need to do or what we want in the moment. And we're also always trying to figure out our energy and our brain space. And so, yeah, there are a lot of times we try to apply ourselves to a task and then we're like, this is actually not going to work right now. And so the more we can make places that are safe for people to just be themselves, just show up as yourself, be yourself the better, like the, the freer we're all going to feel, the more in control we're all going to feel, the more that we can accept ourselves. And I have to say about the body doubling, my husband does not have ADHD, but he regularly wants me to come and stand in the kitchen while he is like doing the dishes or whatever. So there is something in our humanness that, you know, that isolation of just always plugging along on our own, while it sounds so wonderful as a overwhelmed working mom, sometimes like I'd love to do anything by myself. There's also something to be said for 
having the companionship of somebody, whether they're talking to you or not. And so it is a really effective strategy. And it's not just for people with ADHD, but those of us with ADD really benefit from it. Yeah, you reminded me of one thing that used to drive me crazy. My husband also does not have ADHD. And I, I, you had a post recently about, you know, having support and how I think, you know, how wonderful it is to have a supportive partner and um, how we tend to value that support so much that we forget what we've brought to the relationship. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that's something that we struggle with a lot. And, and I've been making a lot of realizations about um, but one thing he used to do that would drive me crazy when I, my kids were young is like, I would go out and have free time. And he would text me the whole time that I was out being like the kids crying, you know, the kid is, kid won't go to sleep. The kid, And I was like, I don't care. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm just realizing that that's like his own v- version of having me stand there with him. <laughs> oh my gosh. That is a violation of the well, after, you know, I, I very quickly told him, I was like, you know, I turned my phone off. Like, <laughs> you know, I can't stand that. And he's like, I just needed to like tell someone. Put it into the universe that right. I am not okay. <laughs> um, so, that, so there's the community kind of subscription, but then there's quite a jump to the next level, which is then like peer coaching and, and a little more organized. What is that next level? Yeah, so the next level is the the meeting. So the collaborative group, we meet twice a week. So we meet on Monday nights and on Thursday evenings. And they have kind of their own area within the enclave where they can connect with one another. And in those meetings, we do some group coaching. We do some peer coaching where people will kind of chime in and interact with one another. um, And we explore these topics together toward growing. Occasionally, we'll do a book together. Um, I, I should say occasionally they will do a book together because I'm not, <laughs> that's my counterpart, Liz, is like a, just an avid reader. And I'm like, great, that is your lane. And you don't have to worry about me swerving into it. Um, so yeah, so it, that is um, that next level of just being able to like really dig in in a more meaningful way than just the online discussions. So many of us struggle with female relationships. It seems to be a common theme with women in ADHD and always feeling like, yeah, I have friends, but I always sort of feel as though I'm a terrible friend and I don't have like friend groups and and I've never felt, felt connected with that. You know, those girlfriends who go out to every Friday night or whatever, like I never had those and everybody feels like my friends don't know each other. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the, the difficulties are. There's so many of them. Um, so I find it interesting that there's that juxtaposition of sort of always feeling lonely and always feeling needing that need for connection intensely and yet um, not getting it um, or somehow always feeling like you're at fault or, or you, you you're not very good at it. <laughs> well, I think we also, we have a history of trauma where we have wanted that connection and we've done a lot of things to try and get that connection. And then we've been hurt because we didn't do something right or somebody did something that hurt us intentionally or unintentionally. And we've just found ourselves often, I think, in environments where we don't feel safe to really be ourselves. And, you know, for me to be your friend, you have to be okay with the fact that you might not hear from me for a while. And then you might randomly hear from me and it will be like an SOS 
things are like not okay. And I need somebody to respond to me right now. And for the people that love me and know me, um, they, they have learned to dance with me. They've learned to like be in relationship with me in a way that benefits both of us. And so that, you know, that piece of it of like being in relationship with women, yes, it's complicated. My very best friend does not have ADHD. And when we were in our early twenties, I tried to break up with her. I was like, I've done all these bad things. I'm sure you're going to judge me for. And so goodbye. And she was like, what is wrong with you? Are you trying to break up with me? <laughs> She's like, you're not getting rid of me. And I've known her since seventh grade when I cussed her out in front of a bunch of people. So this is the kind of love and friendship that we are worthy of, of being seen and known, even in our crazy, hurtful mess. And I want the women in the enclave to have that with one another and to feel that from Liz and I. And I think it's possible. I'm seeing it happen. But I do think that what I'm hearing is a lot of women there have never had an experience where they've been in an environment where they can actually be honest about what they're thinking and feeling or what they did or didn't do. And so it is, um, it's a process of like coming to yourself and letting yourself be seen. So it's not really about connection as much as it is about vulnerability and being seen and known and deeply wanting that but also being terrified and not knowing how to do it, quite frankly. Right. All of these, all those boxes, check, check. <laughs> um, I, you know, I meant to ask you also, you mentioned that you had tried Ritalin when you were younger. Do you do take any medication as an adult? I do. Yes. I take Adderall as an adult. Um, and, you know, I go back and forth about like, will I be on this forever? Maybe. I don't know. I don't yeah. really care. It works for now. <laughs> and when you say works, what is it helping with? Um, I would say postpartum, it helped with the overwhelm of the sensory overwhelm a lot more than I even knew was going on. Um, yeah, it helps me follow through and do the thing that I want to do or I said I was going to do. It's not perfect. It's not a cure. I had a friend say to me once like that her meds help her to focus. And she was like, but I can focus on eating a bag of carrots. And like no truer statement, like you can focus on, for me, it'd be like a bag of chocolate chips, but you can focus on that and use up all that brain power. Um, but I find that it helps me to not get swept up in every passing thought that comes up of like, I must do that now. So I don't have to like grab every impulse to fix the things or do the next thing. When I was younger, it helped me to hold my tongue <laughs> to not like impulsively blurt things out or say things that would come off <laughs> rude. And so, um, but as a mom and as a working mom, I feel like it helps me stick to my to-do list kind of stuff. Mm, yeah. That's interesting. You know, I, I was on antidepressants for postpartum depression and anxiety with both of my kids. And so now with this diagnosis, I look back at those times in my life where I was given uh, SSRI. And then the second time around, I was then also, when that didn't seem to be doing anything, I was then given Wellbutrin on top of it. But, um, you know, realizing now that a lot of that depression and anxiety was was sleep deprivation, interfering with my ability, natural ability to regulate my emotions <laughs> and chronic overwhelm. And now I'm like that, you know, I didn't experience postpartum depression a lot of the ways that they say, mm. you know, that they kind of 
define it as being like that sense of being despondent or wanting to hurt yourself or hurt your child. Like none of those things I ever experienced, but I just also felt like the medication um, gave me the ability to cope. You know, I always sort of felt like it was like, I just kept my head down and would tunnel through and get through things and not just want to like, you know, a plate breaks and I'm on the floor on a, in a pile crying. And now I look back and I'm just like, Oh man, that was all. <laughs> I just needed a good night's sleep. Uh, not to downplay PVD or, I mean, the medication was literally a lifesaver for me, but um it's so interesting now looking back with this lens of like what what else would have worked at the time or what was really going on underneath the surface there. Yeah, and that's such a common story, you know, like most women are diagnosed around like major hormonal events. So you'll see, you know, young girls as they get onto the other side of puberty will get diagnosed and then postpartum or during pregnancy and then around menopause. So you know, our hormones have this enormous effect on our ADHD. I mean, it's, it's huge, but our hormones also have an enormous effect on our mental health. It's like almost entirely managed by our hormones. And so, yeah, you get this, like, I mean, I thought I had postpartum anxiety. I was like, this is definitely, and I might have, who the heck knows. But when I started to understand what ADHD looks like in motherhood, I was like, hmm, well, it's definitely that. It's definitely ADHD and motherhood. <laughs> um, so tell me a little more about Thriving Sister Coaching and, and what that is and who you work with. Yeah, so that is um, my individual coaching practice where I work with individual women, moms. I work with some couples. And, you know, the beauty of ADHD coaching is that it is, it's it's its own practice. It's different from life coaching it's different from therapy. It's kind of sits in this place of, I hold space where my clients can reflect and design strategies for themselves that are actually going to work. They can experiment with things and learn from them. And then they can start to feel themselves turn down that shame down a notch like the shame volume going on of like I'm not doing this right my laundry's crazy and I'm late to work and everything about my life is wrong and I'll never get my act together all of that starts to quiet down the more and more that they spend looking at well okay what was really going on there what was happening so I'll have a lot of people come to me and they'll say I want to do coaching because I really need some routines and I really want to like live up to my potential and so I want to do coaching for routines and my potential. And it's like almost every person I've worked with has started off with wanting routines. There's nothing wrong with that. I think the ADHD brain loves structure, loves it, like thrives when there is structure. Even though the people who, even though they will tell you they hate structure and they definitely don't want anybody else designing the structure for them, the brain does is drawn to it because there's so much noise and chaos in our heads all the time. So when we don't have structure to our day or to our spaces, it creates this like overwhelming internal and external chaos that is very hard to cope with, especially if you need to be productive. It's very hard. So what happens is we try all the things, we buy all the things, we take all the classes, and then they don't work. 
And then we tell ourselves like, I am terrible at this. I'm never going to be a morning person. Well, maybe not. Or I'm never going to be able to finish my degree. Maybe not. But what are you doing? How are you doing it? Are you listening to yourself? Are you seeing what you really need? Do you understand what your strengths are? Do you understand what your needs and values are? So really getting to the bottom of that in order to start reaching goals. So it's a really exciting thing to do. It is really my favorite thing. Um, and, and the power of watching these individuals kind of come and share what's on their mind that day and help them reflect on it so that they can see what it is they need to see because it's in there. For the most part, it's in there. The other piece of ADHD coaching is that I also help educate people on their neurobiology. I'm able to kind of see and watch and listen for those patterns or those signs of like, oh yeah, that's that's ADHD. It could also be anxiety. It could also be depression, right? But like, it's definitely one of the things over here too. I also am around so many people with ADHD that I have all of this, you know, contextual knowledge to say, I hear this all the time, <laughs> which can be so normalizing and like, oh, okay, I'm normal. Like, yeah, you're normal. This is not the end of the world. Um, yeah, so that, you know, it 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 is just, it's a place where I am seeing women work on healing themselves. And a lot of my clients have therapists. Some of them have not liked therapy. And I think a big part of it is that coaching is action-oriented. It's about figuring out what's going on, figuring out what you think of it and how you feel and what's possible for you. And then trying some stuff and then coming back and figuring out the next thing. Um, yeah. So I love it. It's awesome. And that's, that's what I do most of the week. And then this other part of the week, I'm in the enclave. And then I also help guest coach for a organizing program for women who have ADHD with another coach, Linda Rogley. She's a seasoned coach and she runs the AD Diva network. And um, she does this organizing program for ADHD women. And so I get to guest coach with her, which is like amazingly fun and wonderful. Oh, awesome. That's right. I had put that in my notes to ask about and I totally got carried away and we're almost out of time and I forgot. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, yeah, you know, when you were talking about that, um, that, that coaching, you know, it reminded me so much of how important it is for us to recognize, you know, there's always that argument of like, is this a disorder? Is this not a disorder? I hate that it's called a disorder. And then also sort of feeling like, but you do have to recognize that you, as my therapist has told me many times, you're going through life with a brick on your ankle, tied to your ankle, you know, and, and you need to recognize that you have that you work harder, 10 times harder than the average person in certain situations. And you have to give yourself that credit, you know, and, and you don't have to always talk about ADHD, like it's a superpower and it's so great and we're neurodivergent, we're the squad and all of that stuff. Like there, there is room for appreciating how much harder you do have to work 
And I think I know with my clients, especially more specifically around binge eating and food and our bodies, you know, really kind of taking that time to recognize, okay, a lot of the behaviors that you're doing were actually ways in which you were helping yourself and you just didn't realize it because our default is to just like beat ourselves up over these behaviors. What's wrong with me? I need, you know, I need help. I need automation. I need structure, whatever, you know, like I need this, this, this. And, And to really just sort of take a moment and say, you know, what you were doing, you were actually really, you know, helping yourself the best way you knew how at the time, you know, and yes. you should really give yourself a pat on the back for that. Yes. <laughs> you yes. are taking care of yourself. Um, the only thing I would add there is that I would say to your therapist that that brick was not put there by you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like we have, our brain is different. We have a different neurotype. We have a different brain and society tied that brick to our ankles when we were born and said, oh, you cry too much. Oh, you don't get your homework done. Oh, your room is a mess. And, and it, you know, it got heavier and maybe there's even more than one brick for some of you. It's part of why I actually don't do a lot of this superpower talking. Uh, There are some things about my ADHD brain that I appreciate, but I work with so many hurting people who are suffering real losses because of their neurobiology, that it is very difficult for me to stand in that place of positivity that I feel like does get toxic when you're not acknowledging how this can be a real hardship. This can cost people jobs, marriages, relationships with their kids. I mean, it can be a costly way to have to be in the world. And so I just, yeah, I recoil a little bit at that. But like I said earlier, I um, am very comfortable with grief and with suffering and I am drawn to it. So that is also probably part of it. (laughs) Even though I am kind of a natural optimist, I... I think in general, we tend to get really bored really quickly with things that are like functional and stable. (laughs) 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 So, you know, chalk it up. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, just, you know, change it up a little, make it hurt. Right. (laughs) So before we end, just um, tell my listeners, tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you and and how they can work with you and what are the the best ways to find you. Yeah. So um, this has been so fun. Uh, They can find me on Instagram at Coach Elizabeth Brink. They can find me online at the ADHD Enclave. And you can also look up my website, Thriving Sister Coaching, where you can see more about my coaching, my one-on-one coaching. I list my prices because everybody should. And, um, and there's a contact form there too. So if you would just want to like talk and find out more about what you can do to help yourself, you know, feel free to message me on one of these places or whatever. I'm very accessible. Uh, I second that. I feel like you are incredibly relatable. And um, just from what I've known about you, just all the free stuff online and in social media. I think you're doing wonderful things for this community and and for me personally. So thank oh, you. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. Uh, yeah, it's been so great talking to you. Thanks again for joining me and, and sharing a bit about your life. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's so fun. There you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, As you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. Please take a moment to leave me a review over on my website, womenandadhd.com, 
or on Apple Podcasts or Audible or whatever other platform you're using. And if that feels like too much, and I get it, then just take a few seconds to give me a five-star rating. Boom, done. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this neurodivergent superpower, and they may be struggling and they don't even know why. Make sure to tag me on Instagram or Twitter. I'm at women and ADHD. If you are a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD in adulthood and you'd like to be interviewed as a guest on this podcast, please reach out to me. My email is womenandadhdpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to know more about me, head over to worthitwithkatie.com. That's where I help other women with ADHD break free from the yo-yo dieting and binge eating cycle for good. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who has recently discovered that she is not lazy or crazy, but she has ADHD. And now she's on the path to understanding that neurodivergence and finally using it to her advantage. Take care till then.